Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our, use, our, our sinful nature. By our, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God was so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that he, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead, along with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. So God can point us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. As shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace and when you believe and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Thank you, Matthew. Okay. <clears throat> That's a pretty amazing passage. But this passage is, is only a small section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And yet, in these ten verses, Paul has summarized what he takes the first eight chapters of Romans to explain. So I'm going to have to do eight chapters in this sermon. No, no, I'm not. I'm not going to spend eight chapters worth trying to unpack these verses. Rather, I want to try to think about the key messages and how they play out in our current world. I think you'll agree that there are three key messages in this passage, and they are, we were all lost, dead in our sins. God saved us. He raised us to life by his grace, and we accept this through faith. And we are God's masterwork in order to do the good works that he has planned for us to do. You could say that these three messages fit into this common thematic pattern, a problem, a solution, and a purpose. So let's look at these three themes. Now the problem that Paul exposes is very simple, but it's rather hard for us to believe. Paul claims that we're dead in our sins. But I'm pretty sure that most Australians and most Westerners don't feel dead. But interestingly, art often holds up a mirror to our society and shows us things that we find hard to see in the, the middle of the forest of everyday life. Last week I saw Russell Crowe's latest thriller, Unhinged. In it, he plays a man... I'll just call him the antagonist, who has lost his purpose for living. He's divorced, he's lost his job, and he's lost all restraint. He's become unhinged. 
The movie starts with him bashing his wife and her new man to death with a hammer, then burning down their house. It's brutal and shocking. We're then introduced to the protagonist, Rachel, not you, Rachel, a different Rachel, a young mum who's also uh, recently divorced, struggling with her own job and her ageing mum and her irresponsible brother, not to mention her own lack of self-control. While these two characters are in very different places, it's clear that both are struggling with the reality that their lives are not delivering what they want out of them. When Rachel aggressively beeps the antagonist, she's trying to get her son to school and she's running late because she is just not good at managing herself. So he beeps him when he doesn't go through a green traffic light. He then decides that it's time to teach her that actions have consequences. So he steals her phone and starts slaughtering the people in her contacts list. (laughs) Not, Not really. I wouldn't recommend going and seeing it. But it is a very potent critique of the problem of individualism. What is individualism? Like all isms, it proposes that a certain thing has a very high value, perhaps the highest value. In this case, the individual. Theologians or philosophers might call this the problem of radical autonomy, when human beings measure everything by how it meets their individual needs or desires. Both the antagonist and Rachel have lived lives of typical Western individualism and it has led to loss and suffering for both of them. The opening titles of the movie show numerous real-world clips of the dissolution of individualistic America. And you just need to turn on the news to see that nowadays. When the antagonist starts torturing Rachel by threatening her community, we see how important relationships are and the flaws in individualism. In the end, Rachel can only defeat the antagonist by joining together with others in her life. The solution to individualism, according to the makers of Unhinged, is collectivism. What is collectivism? As you would expect, it is valuing the group, the tribe, the collective, above all else. Unhinged is hardly alone in preaching the gospel of collectivism. Every single Pixar movie does the same. The heroes of Pixar movies cannot triumph unless they work together, whether they're toys, fish, emotions, bugs, robots or superheroes. So is collectivism the solution to this problem of being dead in our sins? Well, maybe not. I I was going to put a picture in here, but I forgot to do it. Um, Has anyone heard of a city in China called Nanjing? What's the most famous event associated with Nanjing? Um, 
An atrocity, that's right, that the Japanese committed. It's called the Rape of Nanking because Nanjing used to be called Nanking, like Beijing was called Peking. So the Rape of Nanking was uh, the Japanese who slaughtered a bunch of Chinese, thousands of Chinese. And we visited a museum in Nanjing that um, was built over one of these mass graveyards and you could see skeletons just like a room twice the size of this with just full of skeletons. And it was pretty horrifying. Now, Japan is one of the most collectivist societies in the world. And it has been for centuries. So collectivism may protect those who are part of the group or the tribe or the collective but it's often worse for those outside that group as the Chinese in Nanjing in World War II would attest. And it's not just them. Think of horrors like Somalia or Cambodia or communist China or communist Russia and so on. Millions of lives lost in all of these places killed by collectivist groups. And none of these groups were driven by religion. So individualism destroys us by destroying our vital relationships and collectivism allows, perhaps even encourages, brutality against those outside the collective. What would it look like to not be dead in our sins then? How would we relate to one another if we weren't dead in our sins? Let me share a story that illustrates what true life should look like. Now, back in the 1870s and 80s, North Queensland was the site of several gold rushes. Far up in the Gulf country, alluvial gold was discovered in the Palmer River. And about 30,000 prospectors flocked there to try their luck. The roads linking these tiny settlements were dangerous. Um, the, The... The roads linked these tiny settlements to services like the busy port of Cooktown or the world-class stock exchange of Charters Towers, but they were very dangerous and unreliable roads. One winter, a young prospector, fortunate enough to have found a few good nuggets, decided to return to civilization, sell his gold and get on with life. He started down the road from Palmer River alone. He couldn't afford uh, guards So he had hidden all his small nuggets in his saddle. On the second day of his journey, he was brutally attacked by bushrangers who stole everything of value, including his horse and its saddle. And they left him lying by the side of the road, barely alive. A couple of hours later, because there were so many people in the gold rush, A businessman returning from establishing a new store in Maytown came past. His guards, because he had guards, saw the figure of the young man lying by the road and they realised that this was bushranger territory. With hardly a word, they spurred their horses on and the entire group disappeared in a cloud of dust. Sometime later, a travelling magistrate, accompanied by his armed officers, arrived. The magistrate noticed the man first and he too recognised the danger. It looked as if the man was dead anyway, so there was no possibility of real justice here. 
So he allowed his concerned officers to rush him on and they disappeared as well in a cloud of dust. Sometime later, a lone Chinese miner came riding by. Now, at this time, the Chinese were despised in Australia. Almost two-thirds of the people on the goldfields were Chinese and their persistence and cooperation with one another generally led them to be more successful, which greatly irked the British settlers. So Chinese were not well-loved. In fact, they were hated. So a lone Chinese man was unusual. And, of course, he recognised the danger when he saw the man. And he knew that a further danger for him was that he could be blamed for robbing and wounding the man himself if he tried to help him and was found with the man. But he noticed that the young man seemed to be breathing and so he stopped. He bound the man's wounds, put him on his horse and headed off to the nearest station homestead where he paid for the man to be cared for for a few days while he found a doctor to care for him. Which of these people demonstrated how humans should live? Which one? The Chinaman. That's right. It's okay to call him Chinaman because that's a historic term in this context. (laughs) So how would you describe the ethic of that person Did you did the story ring a bell for you? (laughs) 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 So would you say that that the the Chinese guy loved his neighbour as he loved himself? And that his neighbour was whoever he encountered who was in need? Which of course is the the moral of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the problem with this ethic is that human beings have never been able to live this way. We can't love our neighbours as we love ourselves unless our neighbours are a very limited group of people indeed and then that becomes collectivism. So we love those people but we are brutal to those who aren't part of our neighbourhood. The actual history of the northern goldfields demonstrates this. Eventually the Chinese were... Once Australia became a federation, Australia practised white Australia and the Chinese weren't even allowed into the country. What then is the solution to our problem of being dead in our sins? Is there one? Well, no, there isn't. There isn't a human solution to the problem of being dead in our sins. There is nothing we can do. But there is something that God can do. God gives us his life. As Paul says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much That even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. This 
is one of the most offensive teachings of Christianity. There's nothing we can do to help ourselves. It offends both the individualist who wants to rule their lives according to their own principles and it offends the collectivist who wants to live in harmony with the surrounding group. Christianity offends pretty much everyone. As as Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If we're Christians, it's not because we're better people. It's because God showed us his grace. And we accepted it by faith. Our position as adopted children of God is a gift, not a reward. It doesn't matter how long I've been a Christian. I'm no more a child of God than someone who gave their life to Jesus this morning. So if we can't boast... If we can't boast in the riches that we have as Christians, what can we do? Which, of course, brings us to the final message in this passage, which is our purpose. Paul tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because God made us new, We are now his beautifully crafted ambassadors, ready to do good works. But what good works? Well, in the story of the good Chinaman, we've already seen an example. And in the latter half of Ephesians, Paul gives us many more examples, such as in 428 to 29, he says, if you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work. And then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But it's not. Just yesterday morning, Mabel pulled me up uh, for criticising Italia in, in a way that wasn't really that good and helpful, probably. Um, <laughs> yes, but... But it's not that unusual because it's not easy to do these things. This idea that we should use our hands for good hard work is actually a shocking one in many societies, including large swathes of our own. Modern Australians are happy to outsource the good hard work in their lives. But what about giving generously to others in need? Notice it doesn't say give generously to your family or friends, even if they're not in need, and it doesn't say give generously to strangers who are not in need. We'll unpack this further later in the sermon series, but this is quite a radical command. And these commands transformed Western civilization centuries ago, and as we forget them, we're falling into decadence. But what about um, that 
idea of language. We often hear people saying, language! But Paul's very specific here. No foul or abusive language because what we say should be good and helpful in order to build up the body of Christ. In order to encourage whoever's listening. So that's the crux of these good deeds. These good deeds that we have waiting for us to do. They're to build up the body of Christ, rescuing people from death and nourishing them in their new lives. It's not an onerous task, it's a joyous one. That's what every Christian is called to. Every Christian, not just pastors or deacons or mature Christians or parents. Every Christian Imagine if we're all building up one another and those around us, drawing people to Christ by our example. What could happen? Some Christians make a habit of praying for revival, and that's a fine thing to do. But revival starts in our heart and in our hands. God's chosen us for a purpose, to build his kingdom. The works that he's prepared for us to do, they're there. They're waiting for us to do them. So let's get to it. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen us, that you've adopted us, that you've redeemed us, that, you've, that you have um, told us the future and you've given us the riches of your glories in Jesus. You've chosen us for a purpose, Lord, to build your kingdom, to transform the world. Help us, Lord do these works that you've prepared for us to do, to love our neighbours as we love ourselves and to love you with all our hearts and minds, all our bodies and souls. In Jesus' name, amen.